0: This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Well, how's everybody doing? You got like two days left to get to your New Year's resolution. Anybody, anybody on track for that this year? Isn't it crazy we get to this time every year and we, we start processing next year, this upcoming year, what, what do I want? What adjustments do I want to make? How do I want to be different? How can I get better? Let's go through and look at the top 10. The University of Pennsylvania did a study this past year on New Year's resolutions and they went through, they listed out the top 10 resolutions that most people make. Number one is to eat healthy and exercise regularly. As a matter of fact, 38% of the resolutions that people profess are typically related to health issues. So the get healthy, get in the gym. Now here's the odd thing about that. In the first six weeks of the year, a gym will, show, will sell 25% of the total memberships it will sell in an entire year. In the first six weeks. Out of the people that buy them, Time Magazine reported this number. I actually went to the guy who manages Golds, which is where I go, and asked him, is this correct? 60% of those people never touched the gym one time. He said, he said I just closed down an account for a guy. He's been a member here for six years. He's only been here 10 times. In six years. Number two. Drink less alcohol, (laughs) Um, which is probably typically related to a New Year's Eve event. Um, Number three, number three, I want to learn something new. Learn something new. this I want to learn a new language. I want to learn something. I want to read books. As a matter of fact, 47%, according to the University of Pennsylvania, 47% of the resolutions that are made deal with self-improvement. Something like this. I want, to learn something. I want to learn how to cook. I want to learn to play a musical. I, I, I want to learn to play the clarinet. Maybe that's you this year. <laughs> Number four, I want to quit smoking. I want to quit smoking. 15% of the people that make this resolution actually get to the six-month mark. Only 15% percent of the people that make this resolution at the beginning of the year get to six month mark number 5 i would like a better work life balance as a matter of fact 31% of the resolutions that are made 31% deal with relationships like specifically with home relationships i want to be a better dad i would like to be a better spouse number 6 i want to volunteer more this year. Again, another resolution that is dealing with the priority and sensitivity of how we devote our time. Number seven, I want to spend less and save more money. As a matter, they, they say 34% of all resolutions that they studied were money related. Really a direct correlation to what happens during the Christmas holidays where we spend money that we don't have to try to impress people that we really don't care about. So... Um, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and so we go, we overspend, and so we hit the new year thinking, I, I need to do something about that. Um, number eight, get, get organized, because you just got a bunch of stuff from people that were trying to impress you, and so now you have to figure out where to put it. Number nine, um, to read more, and number 10, to finish the to-do list. Finish some to-do lists. You know, the thing about resolutions that they said at the one month mark, only 64% of the people were actually still on board. At six months, it was down to 46%. And at the end of the year, only 8% of the people who had made New Year's resolutions actually followed through with them. You see, New Year's resolutions are are not new, they're they're actually very ancient, but in, in our culture, they're... They're built on a a philosophy that emerged at the beginning of the 19th century. I'm going to to use a big word to describe it. It's existentialism. It's really the idea that the greatest and most important thing that we would ever experience is me. My existence. And I'm going to show you some quotes from some of the great existential uh, theologians, thinkers, thinkers. Uh, and the thing about existential, it, it, it kind of spread into every vein. There were existential theologians, people who thought about the Bible, uh, writers, philosophers, all of those things. So here's um, Papa Walt, Walt Whitman. I exist as I am, and that is enough. That's enough for the world. I, I am enough. I mean, as believers, we just look at that statement and go, Really? Really? Richard Dawkins, who is a, an existential atheist, said this. And this is really um, kind of unearthing some of that. There is something infantile about the presumption that somebody else has a responsibility to give your life meaning and point. To truly add value, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and as wonderful as we choose to make it. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, it is easy to live for others, everybody else does, but I call on you to live for yourself. And even the great Katharine Hepburn. If you always do what interests you, at least one person is pleased. You see, around this time of year, we encounter an idea that we can get better. That your life, the life that you understand, the life that you live in right now, that you can, as a person, get better. You can be better. You can work to get a better body. You can work to Overcome an addiction. You can work to get better. I can work to learn a new language and become a better person. I can work to have a better home life balance and I will be a better dad, a better husband. If I do this, I can get better. But better is broken. See, there's some problems with better. And let's just be honest about better. Better has failed us. Just go with the statistics from the University of Pennsylvania. If 8% of the people, 8% of the people actually achieve a stated resolution, that means 92% of those people failed. And the idea of getting better failed them. Now, I love Twitter. There's a, a few funny Twitter accounts that I follow. There's one that's it's kind of this Twitter thing where they'll make a fake ID and then kind of tweet as that person, and this, this is called Not Kenny Rogers, and he is extremely funny, and yesterday he posted, as of this afternoon, I have about 45 pounds to lose in the next three days to achieve my New Year's resolution. Right? Better has failed us. It has failed us. The first problem with better, and this is the first thing in your notes today, is who decides what's better? Who decides what's better? I mean, think about that. With, think about it. Who is going to decide what? Let's just get into the health area. All right? There's all kind of things that you could say, I'm, I'm not healthy enough this year. I would like to do something to get better. And, and if you buy into a program, they will define to you what is better. I love my friend John Michael sent me this, this thing. It, it's it's a, a guy who writes cartoons for adults on, online. That's not as bad as it sounds. All right? It's called the oatmeal, and it, it, it's, it's these really kind of humorous, uh, satiristic um, things. And, and this guy um, made a resolution to get healthy. He wasn't healthy. And so we, his solution to that was to start running. And I love this little, this little picture. Look at this picture. This is what he thought he would look like. Hello, ladies. Would you like to watch me bench a bench press or steer because I can't. This is what he thought he would look like when he started running because this is what the idea of better was, but this is actually what he said he ended up looking like. (laughs) All right, better didn't turn out to be what he thought it was going to be. It was better But who decides what's better? You know, in this world, most of us are living with what we call mixed standards. Like really the standards that we have for our life are coming from multiple directions. What our parents say, what our peers say, what our boss says, what we think the Bible says, what that preacher that I really like said. We have these standards that we have accumulated from different places, and, there, and we have this really odd definition of what better is. But look at this verse out of Matthew 6. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. To Masters, we cannot live in peace with multiple definitions of what the standards are in our lives. We can't. Because when we're getting standards that are imposed on us from parents, brothers and sisters, bosses, from Jesus, we will end up despising Jesus because he will ask us to do something that our parents want us not to do. That's what Jesus is saying. If you have mixed standards, you will end up despising someone because you'll have two bosses. The second problem with better is this. We end up with the same problem and the same you. You see, better is still the same. Better is still the same. Now, I might be 15 pounds less in the next three months. But see, if all I'm doing is going to the gym a little bit more and trying to eat a little bit better, And I don't realize that the real issue behind all of those resolutions is not a discipline issue. It is a sin issue. It's a sin issue. Because better is still the same. It's still sin. Let me give you an example. I am a I'll take two guy. All right. Now some of y'all might not be that guy. But that's who I am. So when I sat down with my dad for lunch yesterday and he was making barbecue sandwiches, I'll take two. I'll take two of those. Oh, banana pudding for dessert. I'll take two helpings of that. I'll take two. I only need one, but I'll take two. And in the spectrum of things, you might look at that and go, that's not really that big a deal, Kevin. I mean, it's just kind of enjoying food, right? Let's just go back to the Ten Commandments. You should not covet your neighbor's wife. Long for your neighbor's wife. Why? Because you can't have two wives. It's sinful to have what you need and then want something else. The issue isn't discipline. The issue is sin. Y'all tracking with me? Look at this. Matthew 23, 27, 28. You hope, you're hopeless, you religious scholars and Pharisees. Frauds. You're like manicured grave plots. Grass clipped and the flower's bright, but six feet down, it's all nothing but rotten. Bones and worm-eaten flesh. People look at you and think you're Saints but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. One of the versions of this scripture describes the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're trying to get better, but you haven't addressed the sin that exists on the inside. Better isn't good enough. You see, if we don't address the sin, we're only dressing up the outside. And Jesus always makes the heart an issue. He always makes the inside an issue. Because, and this is the main point of this whole series, this right here. This is the main point. This is where we're going to anchor into. The gospel doesn't promise to make you into a better version of yourself. And around this time of year, that's what we've bought into. I just want to be a little bit better. I just want to get a little bit better body. I want to be a little bit better spouse. I want to be a little bit better parent. I would like to be a better boss, a better employee. I want to be a little bit better. But that's not at all what the gospel promises. The promise of the gospel, the message of Jesus is that God can make you new. God can make you new. Now look at this verse with me. This is kind of our home verse for this series. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. This is possibly one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, because at a point where most of us get to several years into following Jesus, the past that I had came to the surface. And I started to wrestle with an identity that was anchored in who I had been before I chose to follow Jesus. And this verse has always risen to remind me that God did something in me at that moment that made me new. And so I went back to the Greek text to study, and I love that the word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe new in this passage— Literally is used in context to describe a baby after it has just been born. It is so new that it has not even been touched before. So new it has never even been handled or held. But there's an implication to that for us. The first thing for us to see in that verse is that it implies that we've all been handled By sin. We've all been handled by sin. Every one of us has been touched and groped by sin. And that leaves a mark. It leaves a stain. It leaves dirt. The way that sin handles and manipulates, ruins. But the gospel tells us that the blood of Jesus washes us clean. That we could not be clean on our own. That we couldn't. We couldn't find detergent to wash ourselves clean. There's that scene in Macbeth when he's committed murder and he has blood on his hands. And he's trying to wash his hands. Trying to wash his hands, but it won't come clean. That's us in sin. All of our efforts will never erase the stain that the handling of sin left, but the blood of Jesus, the work of Jesus does. So in this, we see this scripture tells us that through Jesus, the new is here. Through Jesus, the new is here. Y'all get that today. Through Jesus, the new is here. Because of the work that Jesus has done, the new is here. You know, there's a a practical side to new. And and I want to spend kind of the the closing moments today talking about that. I want to look at that together. Because for those of us that have decided to follow Jesus, the first thing that I would tell you today is that God says that you're new. God says that you're new. Positionally, Before God, the Bible describes that just as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that we are now, the new has come, the old has gone, the new has come. The Bible uses this term that we have been justified. It is literally a judicial term to describe the presentation of a convict before a judge and to be pronounced not guilty. That we have been justified. We have stood before the judgment of God and God looked at us and said, no, not guilty. Look at this verse with me. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified. We can now stand before God and God looks at you. And though you look at you and you say, I am that same, God says, no, you're not. You are not that same person. You are new. The old has gone. The new is here. And that's tough. That's that's not easy for many of us because many of us look back and go, but God, look. And God's saying, no, I don't see that. I don't, I don't, this sin that you're pointing to, this action that you're describing, this identity that you're creating out of your failure is no longer how I identify you. You are new. And folks, I'm just, I just want to tell you that that may be the most profound truth in all the Bible. That God chooses to look at us and to forget the sin that we have committed. He chooses to look at us and say, I don't don't see that anymore. The The Bible describes this as God taking the sin and throwing it overboard into a sea, saying later that I have cast it so far away from myself, it is as far away from me. As the east is from the west, I can't even get to your sin. I don't think about you in that context. I don't frame your identity that way. You are now framed completely as someone who has faith in my son. I see you through his work. But there's a practical side to new too. There's a practical side. And and I would say, number two, the practical thing is that we have to learn to live again. We have to learn to live again. The best illustration that I can give is that most often when we come to Jesus and God makes us new, there's a process that we have to go through of getting closer. And the Bible uses this analogy of of being molded and shaped and conformed. That's the language of the Bible, being conformed into the image of Jesus, that we're on this lifelong journey of getting closer to him, closer to him, more like him, more like him. And when we come to him and he makes us new, most often there are some things that drop away instantly. Like I, I really used to struggle with this. I, came, I gave my life to Jesus and, I, and, and God took that away from me. Like I used to compulsively use profanity and I gave my life to Jesus and I don't struggle with that at all. I have great control over what I say. So if I do cuss, it's on purpose. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Some people who come to Jesus and they're they're addicts and they've struggled with um, difficult uh, addictions and, and, and they come to Jesus and they give their, and as he makes them new, he takes that addiction away. And that compulsion that had been a part of their life is no longer there. There's some people who had dealt with anger and they come to Jesus and God says, I will take that from you. But there are things that God will not take from you. Because he's going to use that. He's going to use it to change and conform you. Because now you have to learn to live in this new life that he's given you. See, that's the practical part about it. We've trained ourselves for 30, 35, 40, 45 years to live in sin. And now we have to learn to live in the new life that God has given us. Look at these verses with me Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 4 22 to 24. You were taught. With regard to your former way of life. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In this passage, Paul demonstrates something that his writings echo so many times. That there is an old man. The old has gone The new has come, but that we have to put off the old man and put on the new man. We must intentionally walk away from that and intentionally walk into this. That which we were bound to, we now have freedom from, but we must learn to live in that freedom. Put on the new. I love in this verse where he says, Let us be made new in the attitude of our minds and put on, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the thing is, is that if you're struggling with something, if you're struggling with this, and, and, and the attitude has always been, I just want to get a little bit better. I'd like to go for one week without getting a fix. And if I could just go one month without just getting totally slammed drunk. And if I could just be in one relationship and not have an affair. See, the idea of just getting better says, that sin's there, let me just manage that sin. The gospel isn't about managing your sin. Y'all get that with me. Jesus didn't come so that you could just manage your sin, he came so that you could be new. Philippians 3 12 and 14. Now, I'm not saying that I have all this together. That I have made it. But I'm well on my way. Reaching out for Christ. Who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this. But I've got my eye on the goal. Where God is beckoning us onward. To Jesus. I'm off and running. And I'm not turning back. In The NIV, the Bible, translates this passage as, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. The Apostle Paul is a genius. He wrote a third of the New Testament. And he says, One thing I do, and then lists two actions. Because they are the same thing. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. Because God has freed me from that. God has freed me from that. So this year, As we step into 2014, the real question for you is where do you need to be made new? Not where do you want to be better? The real question for you to think about and process even right now is where do you want to be made new? What do you need Jesus to show up and make new in your life? Because better has failed us. But new, new doesn't. New doesn't fail us because Jesus is faithful. Jesus is going to be there. And as we give our lives to him, as we look to him, as we long for him, as we beckon him to come to us, he will come and make us new. Let's pray. God, today we look to you with longing. Many of us today in this room would say that maybe we've been caught in that world where the greatest and most ultimate thing that we've got is our existence. We've been the center of our own world. And maybe this year we've, we've thought and contemplated about ways that we could become better. Because if we're the center of our own world, the only way our world gets better is because we get better. But God, that's not how it works. Our world gets better because you're better. We get better not because of our righteousness and what we've done. We get better because of what you've done for us. And so today, God, we just look to you. And we ask you to come and make us new. Now, with nobody looking around, everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, No. Stirring. I want to ask you a question today, and it's a really simple one. Have you ever been made new by Jesus? Have you ever experienced the life-giving change of, of encountering the gospel of Jesus and having him come and make you new? If you haven't, and you want to, you don't have to wait for anything. If you have never said, God, I've been trying to do this and get better, but I need you to come make me new. For some of you, it might mean that you've got to swallow your pride and admit that you've been trying to get better and you can't do it on your own. For some of you, you just got to look at your circumstances and realize that what I'm doing in life isn't working. I can't do this on my own. I can't be the center of my own world. I can't do this this way. Have you ever asked Jesus to come and make you new? Because if you haven't and you want to, you can do that right now. Is there anybody in the room right now that would say that? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. But you would say right now, I want Jesus to come and make me new. Would you raise your hand right now? Anyone else? And there's those of us that are in the room that have experienced that, but there's places in our lives that we know we need Jesus to come and make it new. I need a new relationship with my spouse. I'm not, not a better one. I just need it new. I need to be a new kind of parent, maybe a new boss. Maybe I need to be a new employee, whatever it is. Maybe today you recognize that better isn't good enough and You realize that you need God to come and make you new. If that's you today, would you raise your hand just between you and Jesus? So today, God, for those that said, God, I'm I'm tired of doing it on my own. I'm tired of doing it my way. I need you to come and make me new. Would you, by your grace, come and do that today? By your mercy, God, would you come and make us new? And as we take the next four weeks to look into your heart to recreate us, God, we ask you to come and to do something marvelous as you change us and transform us for your good, for your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. How about, how about a, a round of applause for those people that raised their hands?